Well, let's open this morning with a quote, an anonymous person wrote this, but it's excellence can be attained if you care more than others think is wise, risk more than others think is safe, dream more than others think is practical, and expect more than others think is possible. On this side of Easter, we want to talk about being people that care more, risk more, dream more, and expect more. As somebody has said, life has two rules, never quit, and number two, always remember rule number one. So again, as we get into this time period, just uh, days after Easter, and celebrating who we are in Christ, but we're still in the middle of this confusing time, and, and many people still in quarantine, others facing you know unemployment, some facing illness problems. We want to look at some things about who we are in Christ and, and how we can be those people that live by example, you know, never to quit, care more, risk more, dream more, and expect more. You know, a friend of mine did an online survey just to ask people, what are some ways that you're uh, keeping positive during these challenging times? And here are some of the answers people gave. Uh, Focus on Jesus. Pray. Don't compare yourself to what everyone else is doing in lockdown. Eat healthy. Exercise. Meditate. Watch or read something that makes you laugh. Uh, Keep a daily routine and uh, practice breathing exercises. So some of those, I hope that you'll maybe consider using some of those. And ultimately, though, we're going to look at some things from Scripture to encourage us, no matter what circumstances, whether it's here today, something six months down the road, to say, you know what, here's what we know the life is like to be in Christ and what we can do, some practical steps here today for individuals, for some couples, but building a faith on the promise again that he is risen, he is risen indeed. Somebody once said, you know, every next level of your life will demand a different you. We're all seeing some challenges where we need to step up in different ways, but that's who we want to be, the people that step up and don't live in fear, rather face things, but do it with wisdom and be an example. One great interview I read just a few days ago was with a man named Dante Moore, and he said his earliest memory goes back to eight years old. And what happened is he came out to the kitchen and his mother and his sisters were weighing drugs and counting cash. He said his whole family involved in drug dealing. So he said, what chance did I really have? And a few years later, he joined a gang, got involved in a lot of crime, a lot of violence. He said what changed for him, though, was one day about 18 years old, somebody put a gun to his head. He said, unless this guy let me go, I would be dead. And that guy did let him live. And he said, you know what? There are two ways people change, either by how bad they want something or by how bad you don't want something anymore. I was at both places. He shared he made a decision that day to to change his life, started to seek God. He went to a Bible college, got married, had a son. Things went well for a few years, but he said that old self came back, that violence, that anger, upsets, and hatreds he had as a gang member with his family, and he fell back into some old patterns. He said he lost his wife. You know, he lost, uh, you know, the calling that he had to go to uh, the ministry, dropped out of college, started working some odd jobs. This went on for a few years. He, he lost all his money. He said about 33 years old then, somebody changed his life. They introduced him to the gym and told him you could make positive changes, not just for you, but become a personal trainer and you can help other people. And that's what he's been doing ever since. And he shares about how he stays on task. He says, I have a picture of myself of when I was a baby as my screensaver. Every time I look at that picture, I remind him of how proud I'm going to make him. 
So again, here in this time, here in this challenging time, we want to be the people that say, you know what, I understand grace, it's a real thing, and that changes everything. And again, knowing who you are in Christ, we want to build our faith here this morning. I want to share some promises from Scripture, some practical tips, so again, that we can care more, risk more, dare more, love more. So let's start with a verse here, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, there are over a thousand prophecies in the Bible, but specifically, there are about 300 about the Messiah. They are there to point us to the one who fulfills these promises and these prophecies to know he is the one to follow. Well, what is prophecy? As Ron Rhodes said, prophecy is God's revelation regarding history in advance. It shows us that uh, only God knows the future. So again, all sorts of prophecies in Scripture through the Old Testament, the New Testament, but 300 plus pointing to the Messiah about his life, his death, his reign, and all these things are going to come forth here. We're going to look at a few of those today because what does Peter mean that we have a more sure word of prophecy? Well, what he's saying here is that you know he was an eyewitness to Jesus, to the ministry, to the empty tomb. But very few people had that privilege. But Peter says, you know what, because of prophecy, because of the word, because of these places we can read about who Messiah is, he says, you can know Jesus just as much as he did. Even though he was an eyewitness, he says, spiritually, you can see him. You can live and know him. He can be in your life just as real, just as powerful as it was to walk with Jesus there in Jerusalem. Chuck Swindoll puts it into context very well. He says, I want to be able to say, I know he lives because I've seen him for myself. I don't want to be a they said so gospel. I want my own story. You have to have your own story. Somebody listening today has seen God. Swindoll goes on and says, they've seen God turn their life around, pick them up out of the gutter, liberate them from drugs, give them a job, put them in a house place a car in their driveway. And he goes on to say this, and when they speak, they are not talking about what somebody told them. They are talking about what they have seen God do themselves. Again, Peter and very few were there to see the empty tomb, but because that more sure word of prophecy, scripture that points to who Christ is and what he would fulfill, when we understand that, experience him in daily life, we see him just as clearly then spiritually as Peter did when he watched him walking through Jerusalem. So let's look at some examples here of what that means to have that more sure word of prophecy. And when we see some of these pointing to somebody that would fulfill them, imagining the odds of somebody fulfilling them, here's one that fulfills all of them. We're going to look at just a few. Again, there's 300 of these, but let's start at Micah 5 too. Micah 5.2 says, Thou, Bethlehem, out of thee shall come forth unto me the ruler, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. This verse here that says Messiah would be born in Bethlehem is the one that set off Herod. You remember the Magi showed up. He said, Who are you guys? They said, We follow this star. He calls the scribes, says, Who are these men? They pull out a scroll. They pull out Micah, which is written about 600 B.C., so 600 years before Herod. Now, suddenly he says, what's in this scroll? They say it says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. 
That's a very specific prophecy. Bethlehem had about 3,000 people. He didn't say somewhere in the world, somewhere in the Middle East. It was somewhere in Bethlehem Messiah would be born. That's why Herod then went crazy, ordered his troops into Bethlehem to destroy some of the town, destroy some of the people. What happened, though, before he got there is Joseph and Mary. Joseph had a dream. An angel said, go to Egypt. They left Bethlehem before Herod's men got there. But again, very specific prophecy. So stop and think, how many people do you know that were born in Bethlehem? How many world-famous people, historically, have we ever read born in Bethlehem? Only one, but keep that in mind. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah written about 500 B.C., so 500 years. The prophecy says, look for one born in Bethlehem. Here's the second thing to look for. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, riding upon a donkey. We talked a couple weeks ago. He rode on a donkey because a conquering general he would show up with a, a horse and in intimidation. Jesus rode a donkey, a symbol of peace. Now think about this. How many people do you know that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? I'm sure there are other people that had a donkey in that area. But the point is, how many people known to history that were world-known leaders making an impact like no other? Jesus was so well-known at this point, entire towns would come out to see him. And you remember at this point, when he rides the donkey into Jerusalem, there are so many people in the crowds and they're shouting Hosanna. And they want to declare him king. That's how well-known he was. That's how popular he was. And he rides in on a donkey to show he brings peace. But when they say, we want to make you king, he says, that's not why he is here. There's no historical writing of anyone else entering Jerusalem on a donkey. So how many people do you know, born in Bethlehem, how many do you know that rode a donkey with crowds all around into Jerusalem? You know, John chapter 20 is, is when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection. We're told in, in John 20 that the disciples are there, and it's the first day of the week. And Jesus came and stood among them, and he says, peace be with you. And John says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And he came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. As we've talked before, that word peace, you know, shalom, it means nothing missing, nothing broken. You know, here we are in this time of challenge and quarantines and fears and uncertainties. And Jesus, there, the relevancy of what he says is just as true today as it was then, that he speaks into our life and says, peace be with you. I bring you peace. I bring you nothing missing, nothing broken. Again, the promise of shalom, so much needed here in this time especially let's talk about couples for a moment here specifically and again some people have been sharing you know contacting counselors and you know just saying you know that they're maybe upset with their spouse maybe their spouse says we should let family come over and the other person says no and or maybe somebody bought the groceries but they didn't get what this other person wanted and people are realizing they didn't know how to communicate and they're upset and they're arguing here's something from Gottman Institute and Mandy Mitchell Gottman Institute as we've talked about it is the uh, place where more research has been done on what makes a healthy marriage and what makes a toxic marriage than anywhere else. 
Some of the tips that they shared about this, though, is to learn to practice the skill of listening to understand rather than to form your rebuttal. You know, we all know people that are, are difficult, always looking to argue. We want to be people that say, let me listen. You know, there's arguments about politics, about what's going on in the, the world with the coronavirus. There's upsets about money. Listen to understand rather than to form your rebuttal. Again, there's difficult people all around that cause arguments. You know, I worked on a pipeline just a couple years back, and there was a guy on there. He just stirred up trouble constantly. And if somebody were to say to him, good morning, you know, what people say all around the world, he would then, you know, you know, just be smart and say, is it just a good morning? Isn't it a great morning? And he would try to cause just arguments with people and upsets, you know, we want to be people to say, let me care more and dare more, love more. Let this time period, let me expand who I am in Christ and grow in him and build my marriage and learn to stop trying to argue with people. Let me just maybe listen, be interested, fascinated, even if they completely disagree and say how interesting that you completely have a different opinion on this. Manny Mitchell says, you know, it might look like anger, but it's really just fear. Anger and fear are two sides of the same coin. They're the same emotion. And somebody may say something and a spouse thinks they're getting an angry response. Step back and say, you know what? They're not meaning to be angry. They're just in this time of uncertainty. Maybe there's some fear there. How can I help them You know, in this moment to understand the shalom, the peace, nothing missing, nothing broken? Because we have the sure word of prophecy that says when we understand what scripture says and see the Messiah for ourselves. It's just as real as Peter himself being an eyewitness to the empty tomb. Mandy Mitchell says, when we're fearful, we're not operating at our best. We're operating out of survival instinct, and there's not a lot of room for empathy, compassion, patience, or listening deeply. So what's the answer for couples in intense moments? Well, dial down the accusatory and aggressive interactions. And when things are seeming, seeming to get heated up, Gottman Institute says, you know, Take a 30-minute pause because that's how long it takes our brain to come down from agitation. You know, we've talked about heart math. You can bring down that agitation in two minutes. But, you know, the point is when it's the frustration, you're in that fight or flight or fight mode. It's just, you know, kind of overcoming. It's time to step back and pause and say, you know what? Grace, it changes everything. Let's be sharing some of that grace between us and let's step away from this argument. Let's go back to Zechariah. Zechariah eleven twelve says, I said to them, if it's agreeable, give me my wages, if not refrain. So they weighed out for me 30 pieces of silver. Again, Zechariah about 500 BC, he's sharing about Judas. Judas, of course, betrayed Christ with a kiss. Chief priest said, how much? And Judas said, 30 pieces of silver. And that's what was given unto him. Why 30 pieces of silver? That's the price of a slave. It shows that Judas did not value Christ. So again, when Peter says, sure word of prophecy is going to point to the one. And when you see that one and know that one, follow after him. How many people do you know born in Bethlehem? How many people do you know that rode a donkey into Jerusalem? How many people do you know that were betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? If that's not amazing enough, Zechariah 11.13 then tells what happens to Judas after he makes that betrayal. You remember, he betrays Christ with a kiss. He gets this, this overwhelming guilt, goes back to the priest and says, I betrayed innocent blood. And they say, hey, that's your problem. 
He says, take the money back. They say that money's cursed. They won't take it. So he throws it on the ground in the temple, goes off, and then takes his own life. Zechariah 11.13 says, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that price they set on me. I took the 30 pieces of silver, and I threw them into the temple for the potter. There are three prophecies right here in this one verse. Again, so if you stop and look at here, he throws the money where? In the temple. How much? 30 pieces of silver, but also he gave it to the potter. Go back to the first century. What happened? Those priests, they see that money on the ground. They say that money's cursed. It can't be in the temple, but they're shrewd. So they say, but we could use it outside the temple. They had bought a field from a potter, and they used that field to bury criminals. So they used that money to pay for that field. Just as it says in Zechariah, the money went to the potter. How many people, again, do you know born in Bethlehem or a donkey into Jerusalem betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that silver wound up in the temple but used to buy a potter's field? Listen to this story here from Terry Blankenship about he and his 18-month-old son. He says, I worked a shift at Procter & Gamble in Dallas. I would complete two weeks of the day shift. Then we'd rotate to two weeks of the night shift. Sometimes it took several days to get used to the change. My wife, Deborah, and I had an 18-month-old son. She was five months pregnant with our second child. She asked me to babysit our son while she went to the grocery store. I took him to the front bedroom of our small three-bedroom home and decided he needed a nap. We lay down on the bed, played and talked. It wasn't long before I fell asleep. Remember, his son is 18 months old. Terry continues, continues, without my knowledge or permission, Jeff jumped off the bed, went out the kitchen door, walked two blocks down to the local school, and played with other children on the playground. As he was walking to the school, a neighbor noticed Jeff by himself. She followed him. School was still in session. As he began to play with the children, the neighbor said, where are your parents? He immediately ran back home with the neighbor behind. He went back through the kitchen door, got back in bed beside me. The neighbor rang the doorbell. I woke up, answered the door with my son tagging along. The lady said, is that your little boy? I said, yes. She told me he was at the school playing with other kids. She followed him home and he came back through the kitchen door. I couldn't believe it. I realized he snuck out while I slept. I was in so much trouble. When Deborah got home, I met her in the front yard and told her I had something to say. Jeff left the house. He went to the school playground, but he got home safely. My wife went bonkers. She cried and cried and said I couldn't be trusted again. What an experience that was. He said, here's the point, though. What I learned from that experience is many Christians are asleep on the job. We have a job to do and get complacent and lethargic and are not fulfilling our responsibilities as believers. Again, when the challenges arise, the believers are called to rise up to that challenge. Whether it's a situation now or something you and I may face months from now in our own individual lives to say, you know what, I've got the sure word of prophecy that tells me who Christ is. But more than that, I don't have a someone told me so gospel. I know him personally. Knowing him every day builds up my faith and I stand on that solid rock and I know he is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
And our last verse we'll look at here is Psalm 22. Psalm 22, written about 900 B.C., Isaiah 53. Read that on your own, written about 600 B.C. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 are all about the crucifixion. Psalm 22:16, though, this is David writing. He says, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And here are these immortal words. They pierced my hands and feet. Again, David wrote this, having a revelation of the coming Messiah. He probably understood what he was writing. Did other people know? Not likely. Here's why. In 900 BC, when David wrote this psalm, execution was done by stoning. Crucifixion would not be invented until 90 BC, 800 years later by the Persians. The process was perfected by the Romans under who Christ would die. David says, when you see one pierced in his hands and feet, follow that one. He is Messiah. How many people do you know, born in Bethlehem, rode a donkey into Jerusalem, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, silver left in the temple and used to buy a potter's field, was then pierced in his hands and feet. That's why Peter says, listen, I was an eyewitness to the empty tomb, but you've got the sure word of prophecy. All these verses and almost 300 more that will direct us to see who is the one that is Messiah. And when we see the scripture fulfilled, follow after him because he will give you shalom, peace, nothing missing, nothing broken. David Smallbone where he lived in Australia, 5% of the people went to church. He wanted to change that by sharing the gospel. He felt maybe if he got involved in music, became a promoter, he could bring in groups to share the gospel and sing gospel music. In the end, though, it didn't work out like he thought. He lost $250,000. Somebody from Nashville called him and said, come to the USA. I know you have some skills you can be in the music industry here. And David Smallbone and his family packed up, left Australia, went to Nashville. When he got there, though, he was told that job, everything fell apart and it no longer existed. David said he couldn't get out of bed for days. He was so depressed. Finally, he and his wife gathered their kids and they said, we have to pray that God is going to do something because we have no money, no job. They began to pray and they said God answered by people that showed up and brought groceries, gave him odd jobs. Somebody gave him a van. Then one day their lives were changed when somebody said, listen, David, I don't know that you're going to make it in music, but I heard your daughter singing. She's got a gift. David said his daughter was 15 years old. Her name was Rebecca. They took her to meet some producers. They said she has a gift. We'll give her a recording contract. She followed that and now has been traveling the world sharing the gospel through music, through books, through movies. She does not go by small bones. She used an older name for her family. People know her today as Rebecca St. James. She wrote the following song that many have sung around the world Whatever the storm, whatever's lost, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, I will praise you. I will praise you. Because we know he is risen. He is risen indeed. 
Let us step up in a whole new way, filled with faith, because on Christ, the solid rock, we stand.